If you have a Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are in the 19th chapter today, Luke chapter 19. This morning we're looking at several verses, Luke 19 verses 11 through 28. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the Lord's Word. As they listened to this, Jesus told them another parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought God's kingdom would appear right away. He said, a certain man who was born into royalty went to a distant land to receive his kingdom and then return. He called together 10 servants and gave each of them money worth four months' wages. He said, do business with this until I return. His Citizens hated him, so they sent a representative after him who said, we don't want this man to be our king. After receiving his kingdom, he returned and called the servants to whom he had given the money to find out how much they had earned. The first servant came forward and said, your money has earned a return of 1,000%. I need that investment broker right there. The king replied, excellent, you are a good servant because you have been faithful in small matters. You will have authority over 10 cities. The second servant came and said, master, your money has made a return of 500%. Woo, still pretty good. To this one, the king said, you will have authority over five cities. Another servant came and said, master, here's your money. I wrapped it up in a scarf for safekeeping. I was afraid of you because you are a stern man. You withdraw what you haven't deposited and you harvest what you haven't planted. The king replied, I will judge you by the words of your own mouth, you worthless servant. You knew, did you, that I am a stern man, withdrawing what I didn't deposit and harvesting what I didn't plant. Why then didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I arrived, at least I could have gotten it back with interest. He said to the attendants, take his money and give it to the one who has 10 times as much. But master, they said, he already has 10 times as much. He replied, I say to you that everyone who has will be given more, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for my enemies who don't want me to be their king, bring them here and slaughter them before me. After Jesus said this, he went on his way and continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. That was not a very impassioned thanks be to God there, um, <laughs> which may be wise. Um, again, I know we have said this several times. It's great to have those of you who've connected with us online with us today, but it's so good, especially those of you uh, family bringing new students to, to NNU and those of you who are new students or returning students. It's just so much fun to have you here. When you're a church like us and you have college in your name, it's just not the same when school's not going. In fact, when school's not going, even the pastor goes to Europe on big vacations. Uh, but we're back. We're back. You're back. We're all back. It's wonderful. It's great to be t- uh, together today. Um, but since, especially those uh, new college students and returning college students, since you're here today, I, I kind of want to take this text and And I really would like to preach to you this morning and just invite all these other old folks to listen in. We have been looking together at some of the parables out of Luke, and we're going to continue to do that through the month of September. But this morning, I want to take this parable that is really kind of problematic. 
um, super problematic. Sometimes we encounter parables, and they're confusing to the disciples. An example of this, a few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower, and at the end of it, the disciples were kind of confused, and so Jesus said, well, here's what this means, and then explained to them what the soils are like, and etc. But more often than not, we just kind of get these parables that are put into the text, but Jesus doesn't come back to explain anything. And in particular, this one is really challenging and problematic. And invites us then, the parables invite us to explore them, to play with them, to, to try to wrestle, much like Jacob wrestling with the presence of God, wrestle with them and somehow become different after we've wrestled with them. And so I want to wrestle with you today, and I want to do a couple of things that are kind of risky. And so if I'm not here next week, you know, I, I overdid it. But, um, but I want to do a couple of things. On, on the one hand with this text, I want to be a little bit what I'll call kind of rabbinic with you today. And what I mean by that is, is I remember the first time I encountered uh, what are called midrashes on the scripture by rabbis. And what was shocking to me was how these these Jewish rabbis who so deeply love and are invested in the Old Testament, how playful they are in their readings of it. So for example, here's one of my favorite midrashes of the Old Testament. You remember the story of Cain killing Abel. It's kind of a limited story. They offer gifts to God. Cain offers um, the, you know, the fruits of the ground and Abel offers the first of his flocks and sacrifices those to the Lord. And then it's really not told in the text why in essence, God prefers Abel's gift over Cain's. We just know that God preferred Abel's over Cain's. And so we can kind of speculate. I remember as a kid growing up in Sunday school, it was often said, well, that's because Abel offered a blood sacrifice, whereas, you know, Cain offered just grain, etc. But later I read the Old Testament and found out there's a whole bunch of grain offerings in the Old Testament too. And so we have to kind of speculate, why does God do that? Well, I, I read this wonderful midrash one time on the story of Cain and Abel that I love that argued that the problem wasn't so much their gifts as their occupations. And these Jewish rabbis are arguing that Cain, because he offered the grain of the land, had become a farmer. Whereas Abel, offering sheep and flocks, had become a, a wanderer, a, a sheep herder. And when you're a sheep herder, you can't really claim land. You just have to wander everywhere where there's grass for your sheep or your cattle or your goats to eat. Whereas Cain, when you're a farmer, and I think I've noticed this around here, when you're a farmer, you need people to stay out of your land. And so you put up fences, oftentimes barbed wire. And around here, sometimes you put up a sign that says, we shoot first and call 911 later, right? Like, like, uh, like stay, you know, stay off our land. And it's interesting in the story of Cain and Abel that then later Cain takes Abel out to the field and kills him in the field. And when God comes to Cain, he says, why, you know, where's your brother? And he says, I don't know, my, my brother's keeper, which just hangs there in the text. But God says, you're, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. And so often Jewish rabbinic scholars will kind of play with that and say, part of what that text is trying to teach us is this, that, that we long for security. But the problem when we want, long for security is we then say, this land is ours, you stay off of it. Shh, shh. Whereas God so often in the Old Testament prefers wanderers, where he can say the land is mine, not yours. And where all of these disputes that have happened all over history, where blood has been spilled on the ground and continues to this moment, being spilled on the ground over territory, 
where God invites us to see ourselves as wanderers and not so much owners of the land. Are you with me? That was a really good sermon. It has nothing to do with today's sermon. But, uh, but, but what is fascinating to me about that kind of midrash reading is this. Is it, does it push the text a little bit? Yeah. Is it there in the text? Maybe. Is it true still anyway with other themes of the Bible? Yes, it is. And so it's, it's kind of fascinating reading. I, so I want to do a kind of rabbinic thing with this story today, but I also want to do a kind of scholarly thing. And one of the things New Testament scholars love to do is take texts that appear more than once and put them next to each other and display the differences between the two. Are you with me? So this parable that we find in Luke chapter 19 today actually occurs in one other gospel as well. It shows up in the gospel of Matthew. And I want to walk with you, and I have some slides. Folks upstairs are going to help me here. I have some slides to help us kind of wander through this, and this will be on the exam. Um, So... In Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, we get what's called the parable of the talents. Now, part of your awkwardness, I think, this morning in saying thanks be to God, is we actually don't read Luke's version of this parable very often because it's quite violent. Matthew's version isn't quite as violent. And it uses a different kind of money. And because Matthew uses talents... It's, it's so much, it's, as Caleb, who preached early this morning, said, we love telling Matthew's version because then we can kind of go to youth camp and speak to people who have no money, but they have some talents, right? Some gifts that God has given to them. And we can say, you don't have money, but you have, you know, gifts. What are you going to do with these gifts, these talents that God has given to you? And then we can, and then people like you who have money, you can keep your money and give your talents uh, back to God. But Luke is in pounds, as we'll see. But I want to compare Matthew's version to Luke's version. So hang with me. I I think this will make sense. Go to the next slide. So first of all, we got to look at the context. Matthew actually gives no context to the parable. Jesus just jumps into telling it. But in Luke, as you noticed this morning, there's a context to it. Jesus told him another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought God's kingdom would appear right away. Now, we could take that line that Luke includes to mean Jesus tells them a parable because they thought the kingdom of God was going to come, but it's going to take a long time, and so you need to be prepared to use your gifts in certain kinds of ways, right? But another way to read that line is this, to say these are people going to Jesus with Jesus to Jerusalem, seeing his giftedness, thinking the revolution is about to happen, and everybody who's been their enemies will now be conquered. But in reality, this kingdom that's going to come, not like other kingdoms, is going to take a long time to go back to the parable of the sower. It's going to be like seed that is sown into the world. And it's going to take a long time for that harvest to come, which may mean that there's a whole bunch of suffering that also comes with the coming of God's kingdom. You with me? Okay, that's the context. Next one. The main character. In the Matthew version of the parable, Jesus just says, there's a man who goes on a trip. And he's just some man who has servants. But in Luke, Luke's a bit more descriptive. A certain man who was born into royalty went to a distant land to receive his kingdom and then return. That's the common English Bible. In the NRSV, it says, this person went away to get royal power for himself. I know that's a strange thing in our culture to think about, because for us, you do things like win elections and you don't have to go anywhere. We come to you and and you get power. But in the ancient world, when there was a turnover of an emperor, for example, there was often a conflict over who got power next. Uh, 
as some of you know, Deb and I and Sophie, for the last two weeks, we've been uh, kind of traveling in Spain and France and Italy and having a great time, and we saw lots and lots of art. And we had such a good time, it's going to show up in probably the next eight months of sermons. Um, <laughs> but only twice today. Uh, but while we were at the Vatican Museum, actually just this last Monday, I got to see this famous painting that I've seen in all sorts of books. It's, the, it's when Constantine, has the, uh, the emperor of Rome, has this vision of the cross or kind of a symbol of Christ. And he hears this voice that says, in this you shall conquer. But part of that vision is about the fact that the emperor has died and we don't know who the next emperor is going to be. And in fact, his children and relatives start having conflicts with each other. And in fact, Constantine is going to have to go out to the Milvian Bridge and fight this battle to see who's going to have power, right? And so in some ways, this sounds much more like a secular leader going out like Constantine to get the power accumulated and then come back to his people. Are you with me? All right? Next one. The servants are a bit different. In the Matthew version, we have three servants, and they're each given talents, valuable coins. One's given five, one's given three, and the last one is given one. In Luke's version, as you notice, the Common English Bible writes it this way, 10 servants, and he gave them money worth four months' wages. In Luke's version, they are pounds, which is a greater amount of money in the first century world. And so this exorbitant amount is given, but he gives it actually not just to three, but to 10 servants. And he says to them strange things. Now go while I'm absent. Go and do business. Taking care of business. That, I don't know where that came from. Um, go do business. But there's this theme in the parable that says, but there's all these people, though, who don't actually really want this person to be their king. And they're not real thrilled about the fact that this person is going to become their ruler. Next one. When the ruler comes, or the man in Matthew comes, to see what is the return on this investment. In Matthew, the one given five had made five more. The one given three made three more. But the one who had been given one, if you remember the story, buried it in the ground. Dug a hole and buried that talent in the ground. But in Luke, the first servant had taken this massive investment and had multiplied it by ten. That's amazing. A thousand percent is the way the common English Bible translates it. Had made 10 times more. And the second servant had taken that investment and made 500%. Had made five times more than the original investment. Where the last servant didn't bury the talent, but actually had wrapped it up for safekeeping in order to return it to that person who'd gone away to, to acclaim power. A couple of things here. In Matthew's version, you know, making 100% on your investment is pretty good. And if you have an investment strategy in which we could get 100%, we should talk afterwards over lunch. Um, but to get 10 times or 5 times, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I have this investment strategy and you'll get 10 times what you invest in it, I'm going to ask around for a while. I'm going to call some folks and say, hey, this person came to me. It's a scam, right? And they'll say, yeah, it's a scam. Or if it's not a scam, you're cheating somebody. And so that kind of investment has this sound, not like they're being faithful, but actually like they're being mm -hmm, it's kind of scheming. You with me? You still with me? All right, next one. The reward. 
In the Matthew version, the servants are put in charge of much. It's very kind of nondescript. But in Luke, notice it's actually kind of empire-oriented, government-oriented. You're going to be given rule of 10 cities or five cities. Next one. We also see the judgment. In Matthew, the ruler throws him out into the farthest darkness, and people there will be weeping and grinding their teeth, which if you're familiar with biblical language, you know that's kind of a language about a kind of divine judgment, about being excluded from the kingdom and being left out in the garbage dump, right? Where there's all this garbage burning and fire, right? It has that kind of language of divine judgment. But the weird thing about Luke, and the part that I think made you go, ugh, at the end of it, is that the judgment, as for these enemies, the ruler says, who don't want me as their king, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I lied, I'm going to tell you three stories about Rome. The second one is, as it dawned on us the other day as we were eating at this place that, um, that used to be called Domitian's Circus, we were having lunch over a place where a bunch of Christians had been killed. Um, this parable has that language of people being taken to the Colosseum or be, being taken to various arenas and being killed in front of a ruler. Are you still with me? Next one. But here's the big one. It's textual location. When Matthew tells this parable, he puts it in between two other parables. The first parable is, it's preceded by a parable of the ten bridesmaids who don't take care of their oil and their lamps, and the Lord or the bride returns, and they're not, five of them are ready, but five of them are not ready. But it's preceded, the parable that comes after it is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Who has, who, who has taken care of Jesus in all of his distressing disguises? You were, I was naked and you've clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. All of those parables, all put together, have to do with someday judgment will come, Christ will return, and we will be assessed on how we use the gifts that God has given to us. Are you with me? Here's the weird thing about Luke. And so far, only five of you are asleep. In Luke, the story right before this parable is the story of Zacchaeus. Was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. The story of Zacchaeus, going, Jesus coming to his house, and that moment where Zacchaeus, in the middle of the meal, says, Lord, if I have cheated anybody, I give back all that I have done. That there's this kind of moment of conversion for Zacchaeus where he sees the brokenness of the things that he has participated in and decides in the presence of Jesus to repent of that, to give all of that back. And then the story that comes after this parable is actually Jesus going to Jerusalem and cleansing the temple because he finds all sorts of money-changing and unethical things taking place in the temple. Are you with me? And so if you're with me, this is the strange thing. It seems strange that Luke would put a parable of Jesus about how we are called to take the gifts that God has given to us, multiply them in ways that kind of seem kind of seedy, in between a story about a guy who realizes he's participating in a system that he should repent of, and Jesus going to the church and finding the church in the very same business that he was mad at, and Zacchaeus just repented of. Did you get that? So don't do bad stuff. Oh, but kind of do bad stuff if it's kingdom related. But then I get to the temple and don't do bad stuff. So perhaps Matthew is using the parable to tell us one thing, but Luke is using the, the parable to invite us to see 
our call in a slightly different way. And so let me land this plane. Last one. Or maybe that is, is that the last one? That's the last one. Perhaps what Matthew is inviting us into is to recognize actually what we read in Jeremiah earlier. God has given to each of us unbelievable gifts. Um, unbelievable blessings. Unbelievable talents. And there is an expectation that you will use that. One of my favorite books of the last 20 years or so um, is a book called uh, To Change the World. It's a book by a sociologist, James Davison Hunter. And in it, Hunter argues Christians want to change the world. In fact, we use language a lot, especially related to Christian higher education, about creating world changers, right? We want people to be world changers. And we're preparing young people to go out in all of these different fields and be world changers. And Hunter's book is actually quite fascinating because he argues that sometimes we think then change occurs from the bottom up. But he argues actually two things about how the world changes. One is it changes really slowly. And two, it actually changes from positions above more than positions below. And so what he argues is one of the most important things you students could do today is to realize what an incredible opportunity you have to participate in higher education. And I know sometimes some of that education gets wasted on 19-year-olds because you're not really ready to really fully appreciate all that you're receiving. But I want to invite you to recognize what Matthew is saying in that parable of the talents. This is an incredible gift, and, and God has an expectation for you to use it. And Hunter argues what you have to do then is you have to master the craft that you're leaning into, and the way the world changes is you begin to master that, and you get into places of influence in the world, and you can bring about incredible change because of those places of influence. But there's one other thing Hunter argues. As you get into those places of influence, you have to participate in what he calls faithful presence. Because the temptation as you get drawn into those worlds and as you become better and better at those crafts or economies or those giftedness, the temptation is going to be, become part of that system. And Hunter argues the people who have really changed the world are the people who have mastered that, but they haven't been so owned by it that they can from the outside begin to change those areas. Now here's my last Rome illustration. As we were going from art museum to art museum, we realized you go into this section and they say, this is art from this time period, right? This is art from the 14th century. But then you go to the next gallery and they say, this is the art from the 15th century. And you'll notice this artist mastered what their teacher had taught them, right? But then they started playing with shadows. Or they started playing with depth and warmth. Or they started to play with reality. And they move the art forward. And then you go to the next gallery and they'll say, Those, these students mastered what their masters had taught them. But then they did this. Did you follow that? That they, they leaned into those gifts, but they were not absorbed into it. Now to Luke. Because if you're hearing what Luke is saying to us, Luke is saying, here's the danger for you. That you will be conformed to the patterns of this world. And I'm convinced 
in the Luke inversion, the third servant who says to the master, I can't do this. I'm giving it back to you. And I know that's risky. And I know what kind of person you are. You take what's not yours. And I know that that's what you expect of me, but I cannot do that. I always think of the parable this way. Have you ever wondered what happened to Zacchaeus on Monday when he went back to work? When Zacchaeus went back and said, hey, I had the greatest meal this weekend. You know that we steal from people and we overcharge and we're, we're kind of oppressive. I can't do that anymore. Do you think that his taxing overlords went, oh, we didn't realize that we were receiving a hundredfold on our investments. We never dawned on us. They said, no, we'll find a new tax collector. For we're going out and gaining power. And the Lucan version invites us to go with Jesus to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to count the cost of saying, I cannot be part of these unjust systems. And therefore, I have to use the gifts that God has given to me, but I have to use those in ways that glorify and bring the kingdom and do not continue to prolong this broken empire that chews up people, especially those on the margins. In other words, we're kind of stuck. I want to say to you this morning, young people especially, you are stuck between the parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds. And maybe that's what parables are supposed to do. Every once in a while, Jesus, the disciples will say to Jesus, these parables are confusing. And perhaps that's what parables are supposed to do. Make this harder, not easier. Invite us to the challenge of what it means to follow Jesus fully and faithfully. When I was a college student, one of my favorite speakers uh, was a guy named Tony Campolo. Some of you are too young to know him. I loved him because he... He was one of those speakers that would come to college campuses and get us all riled up, and he is just a great storyteller. But he tells a story, it's one I love, where he tells a story about how he is invited to speak, and oftentimes at college graduations. And, and Joel, he was invited to speak at a graduation at a Christian university, and it was one that he had been to a lot, and they were very familiar with him. And he said he had spoken at college on the West Coast, and then he flew back to the East Coast. He said, so I was kind of tired and cranky anyway, so but I got there, and, and the president got up and introduced me and said, uh, we're privileged today at this graduation to have Dr. Tony Campolo as our speaker today, and, and you guys know him. He's been here a lot, and so I don't need to introduce him to you, but let me introduce you to him. So he said, Tony, sitting in front of you are some of the brightest students in the world. Students who are headed to Harvard Business School, students who are headed to Yale Law School, students who are headed to the finest medical schools. He just kept going on and on about how amazing and successful these students were. And Tony said, I, it just kind of irritated me. <laughs> he said, so I got up, he said, I set my speech aside, and I, and I started by saying this, President so-and-so, if this were really a Christian college, nobody would want your graduates. He said, kind of went downhill from there. Um, <laughs> I love that story, and I want to say then to you, especially you returning students and new students, God has gifted you. Don't miss out on the opportunity to maximize that giftedness for the sake of the kingdom. But do not be squeezed into the world's mold. And not just unjust economic systems, although please don't do that. 
But be the third person, be the whistleblower who says to a culture that wants to objectify you, respond to that culture by saying, I cannot do that. Not only do, do I refuse to be objectified myself, I refuse to objectify my peers. In a culture that wants to tell you the greatest joy in life is sensual pleasure, I want you to say back to that culture, there is a place for the enjoyment of our bodies, but that is not the fullness of my humanity. And I refuse to allow my whole life to be judged by whether that happens or not. And I refuse to use people simply for those purposes. In a world, and I, I feel this tension, I want this church to grow and flourish, but in this day and age, in order to do that, I feel like I have to be politicized one way or another. And I feel like I have to say then back, no, I cannot play that game. I have to be faithful to the politics of Jesus rather than the politics that wants to squeeze us into one mold or another. And that may come with a cost. Because I am stuck between the parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds. And so God bless all of us in places like NNU and schools because we want those students to flourish and be the very best we can. But some days I think if we were really a Christian college, nobody would want our students because they're such misfits. And keep saying to the world, I can't play this game this way because I serve a different ruler. And so this morning in closing, I would love to pray a prayer of blessing on you students who are here. It's a prayer I wrote a few years ago based on the tension between these parables. And so I, I know this may mean that you don't come here anymore because we embarrassed you on the first day, but, but I would love if you are a new student or if you're a returning student to the university, I would love for you to stand where you are because I, I would just love to pray this prayer of blessing on you. Would you do that for us? I, and I would love these folks to kind of see you. Get a good look at them. Decide to invite them to lunch every once in a while. Be sure to pray for them. But let me pray this prayer of blessing upon you this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May you discover the mystery of living in the world but not being of it. Like Daniel, may the leaders of nations want you in their inner circle of authority because of your divinely given wisdom and insight. But like his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, may the leaders of nations hold you in furnace-building suspicion because you claim a higher citizenship than any nation can offer and you will always obey God rather than rulers. Like Joseph, may your integrity, determination, and divine gifting lead the prominent and mighty corporations and businesses of the world. May they place you in seats of power and influence. But like the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, may your prophetic life so call into question the idolatry on which our lives are built that the unjust economic systems of our world conspire to run you out of town before you undo their mythology. May the great universities and graduate schools fight over you when you graduate because they long to have students who committedly give their minds back to God as an act of worship. 
but may they not know what to do with brilliant people who would rather identify than who rather than identifying themselves with the cultured elites keep finding their identity with the poor and the marginalized. Like Enoch, may you live long, productive lives so connected with God that your transition into God's kingdom will be like taking an, an unbroken stroll into the next life surrounded by the presence of the Spirit. But like Stephen, may you lay down your life in the prime of life as a peaceful witness to a kingdom the world cannot see. Like our Lord, may the world love you and despise you. May you be embraced and rejected. May you be given all things but keep nothing. May multitudes follow you, but may you take up your cross daily. May you become first by being last, and may you become great by being the servant of all. And may you daily give your talents to the Lord, prepared to one day be held accountable for how you used all of these gifts in life that God has given to you. But like Zacchaeus, refusing to be conformed to this present age, may you wrap up and give the, give the pound the principalities and powers will offer to you and give it back to them willing to pay the cost of discipleship. Live your life in the tension between the talents and the pounds, in the tension between the empire and the kingdom of God. And now would you all stand? And God, I pray for each and every one of us, young and old and in between. May we be so continually shaped by your unique story and the forming practices of a particular people called the church. But may our lives also be lived boldly in the rich beauty of a good creation filled with your transforming presence. God has called us all to help heal a broken world. May the world be both delighted and terrified that we are on the way. And may he who began a good work in us May he carry it to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen, amen. Let's respond together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. Worthy every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We cry out, he's holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you, open up my eyes in wonder, show me who you are and your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. 
Lord, you are worthy, worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever breathe. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Only for you we speak your name. Jesus, the name above every other name. The only one who saves. Jesus, the only one. We know he's worthy, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you, yes, we live for you. And he is holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. So open up my eyes in wonder and show. To open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. That you would lead us, Lord, that you would give us your eyes. We build our lives, and I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, and I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be. We build our
Thanks for leaning in uh, this morning. Again, so good to be together. I do want to invite you to lunch. If, if you're unfamiliar with where Hope Park is, it's right out that door right there. It's our little park attached to us. We have enough food for everybody today, and I do think we actually have places to sit if you don't, uh, if you didn't bring a chair with you, which is fine. And if it's too hot out there, we can set up some tables in the gym or inside too for you to eat, uh, but we'd love for you to come and be part of that as well. If you've listened well this morning, um, which was a bit of a challenge, but if you've listened well, I, I may be wrong. Um, because if you listen well this morning, I basically just told you, in, when Jesus tells the parable in Luke, the master isn't God, it's Caesar. It's the, it's the principalities and powers trying to mark us in certain kinds of ways. And I may be wrong about reading it that way, but I'm not wrong about this. It is true that we are invited to live in the world but not be of it. And that challenge runs through the heart of each and every one of us, no matter how young or old we are. And we are invited to give our gifts back to God and we will be accountable for that. But we are also invited to live in ways that don't reflect the brokenness of the world around us and to live in ways that reflect the new creation. And here's the thing, scripture says that's impossible. You can't do that in your own strength. That's why this benediction's for us. And now unto him, who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us. These people caught between the parable of the talents and the pounds, the people he calls his church, and in his son, Christ Jesus our Lord, now and for each coming generation. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.